I'm Graham Mack, and welcome to the Pod 20, the countdown of the most popular podcasts in the world right now. This week, my special guest is the NHS whistleblower Tom Bell from Tom's 5-Minute Friday podcast. Tom, we hear all about the shocking scandals in the NHS, like the Stafford Hospital scandal, the Bristol Heart scandal, the Alderhay organ scandal, and the infected blood scandal. And also the NHS's attempts to cover these up. Why is the National Health Service so shockingly bad? A great part of it is the culture. There's no accountability. Let's get down to an example of what you noticed. So you're working for for a particular part of the NHS. Can you say which bit? Yeah, I was working for something called the Cumbria Partnership NHS Foundation Trust, which provided mental health and community services in Cumbria. So what happened? Just tell us what happened and how you were treated when you brought these things up. Okay, so um, let me give you a real example. So I I came in with a private sector background into the health service, yeah? And one of the first things I did was, because I had responsibility for, excuse me, for looking after how, in in the public sector, Graham, they have a posh name for them, they call them stakeholders, right? How all the stakeholders viewed the trust, right? In other words, all the GPs that referred into services, yeah? All the voluntary organisations that referred into services, and you know people like housing associations and adult social care. So I worked with all those people, yeah. And we have we've got eighty three GP practices in Cumbria, around about three hundred and fifty to four hundred doctors, yeah. So my job was to go out and talk to these people about how we were doing, yeah. So right. coming from a market, so that was research, your actual job was to yeah. find out exactly how you were doing, regardless of these yeah. targets and stuff. You wanted to find out from the people who were using the service, get their feedback on what's the kind of service they were getting. Absolutely. So I would talk to people, mental health advocacy groups, represent patient representative groups. Now, here's where, here's where it gets interesting. I think my jo- I don't think they realised who they hired when they hired me. That's the first problem we had. So right. I think what they thought, because I turn, you know, you know, as you do, you turn up with your grey suit on, don't you? Your best suit, yeah, nice tie, and at an interview, right, when you need a job, because I, I, yeah. I never assumed that the culture of the NHS was so broken. So I get this job with the NHS, right, and I've got to tell you, I was so chuffed to join the NHS. I went to this induction early in 2012, right? There's about 50 people in the room getting inducted. You know, we're all getting sheep dipped into the into the NHS. And the chairman started speaking. I don't remember what he was saying, but I just remember starting to clap. I was like a demented seal, yeah? Because I thought, I was so, you got to remember, I was kicked out of the house on my 16th birthday, juvenile criminal record, you know, thrown out of school to, to you know, I, I worked my ass off to get my MBA and to get my master's in marketing and all that crap. And so to finally get a job with the NHS in a responsible job, middle management role and then I thought Tom you've arrived this is fantastic you know you've yeah. arrived mate brilliant yeah. you can now add some value to the party this is good and um, and you know what I used to it's funny I used to look at the courthouse where I got sentenced for all my juvenile offences <laughs> I used to look at that right from the office in the NHS yeah I could see that and I remember one day the JCBs came to knock that down and I was cheering out the window. You know, like was, <laughs> honestly, I just I felt like this is fab. Life doesn't get any better. But anyway, sorry. So so I'm there, right? And I get into this job, and I think they've hired someone that's going to tell them what they want to hear. Because you know, what, as I say, corporate grey suit, MBA. Yeah. I don't think they knew that they'd hired someone with such a strong moral compass. And also, if you combine that with a private sector background in sales, where you're only as good as last month's sales, right? You're only as good as what you do, what you bring in through the door. Yeah. Yeah. So I got I got stuck into this job and I uh, constructed this survey, right? So marketing, I used, I'm, I'm a member of the Market Research Society. I've been a chartered marketer for 20 years. I put this survey together, take it out to all the GPs. Oh my God, they loved it. GPs were finally being asked 
what they thought, right? And they did not hang back. Jesus, they did not hang back. They just, the response rate was around about 50%, which for a survey is phenomenal, right? And the results of that survey were that less than less than one in 10 of the GPs on the patch thought that the trust understood their needs, was responsive and was reliable. These are healthcare services we're talking about, right? So less wow. than one in 10 of the people that referred their patients into services thought it was any good. When I took those results back, they were just brushed under the carpet. I said, look, this is an opportunity to improve. These people are telling you what matters to them. And I was told that we would never be allowed to repeat that survey. The results were doctored and the charts on the, the colors on the charts were changed, right? So that wow. people thought we were, oh, you know, this, it was all about reputation management. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is, this is I've been hired into a job where I was told it was about improving things and I'm giving them feedback. You know, this is data. This is empirical data. This is, if you're a marketer, that's gold dust, isn't it? Mm. These people are actually saying, if you do this, you'll improve. Mm. And they just weren't interested. And then I think the thing that really swung it for me was that a young girl called Helena Farrell, she was a talented academic. She was musically gifted. She took her life and she hung herself in the woods behind a hotel in Kendall. And one of the reasons that she did that was that she'd been failed by the child and adolescent mental health services who said that she didn't, she didn't pose a suicide risk. She was an outpatient, wasn't she? She, she was, was an outpatient, yeah. yeah. She was an outpatient. And um, needless to say, she very clearly proved that she did pose a very strong risk. And the trust dropped the ball. Now, we all make mistakes, right? We're all 99% chimp, two-thirds water, with billions of neurons flying around in our brain, right? We're going to make mistakes. We're going to drop the ball from time to time. But what I saw the trust do was I couldn't live with it. What the trust did was it focused entirely on managing its reputation. It mm. was just bothered about what the press and the regulators would say. It never spoke about the I was sat in meetings with people and nobody was speaking about the family. Nobody's speaking about the tragedy that's just unfolded. They're all talking about how do we manage our press releases? How do we manage our reputation in, you know, with the regulators? And it was just, I just thought that this is a human tragedy that's just unfolded on your watch. I mean, it's a failure, isn't it? They, they've got to admit they failed and they should be looking yeah. at how did we fail and how do we reduce the chances of this happening again? And you're telling me they were looking more at how do we... How do we cover this up and make it look, not look as bad as it was? And how do we distance ourselves from this, in effect? Absolutely. That, that's, that's the trick. That was the trick. I mean, they actually went to the levels of, you know, and it's easy for me to sit here. I, I might sound like a conspiracy theorist, so forgive me if I do, but all this, I can evidence all this stuff. They actually went to the lengths of concealing reports which had shown that the child and adolescent mental health services were inadequate and unfit for purpose. When this case went to the coroner's inquest, the coroner was never shown those reports. The family were never shown those reports. So, so evidence was withheld. Oh man, yeah. And I, you know, and being brutally honest, I'm sure that happens much more than we like to think it does. Because, and it, and I know it's really difficult for people to say, well, that must mean that they're all bad people. They're not, genuinely not. You know, I've sat down and had coffees and meals with a lot of these people. They are just trapped in systems that do not allow them to behave any differently because the way whistleblowers are treated, the way people that break ranks are treated. So what happened you know to you when you called them out on this then? 
Oh man, um, it. Uh, I was basically gaslighted and bullied, and I found myself at one point. I was doing five the work of five people. What? So they covering? they were just what they were swamping you, dumping stuff. So yeah. my role was changed. I was removed from that role, and there's a, there's another story for you there. But I was removed from that role. I was absorbed into another team. Um, I was bullied, belittled, questioned, all the classic tricks. So, mind, constructive is, you know, dismissal, I, they call it, don't they? Yeah, I mean, and do you know what? They handed me out on the grounds of because I had to take time off with depression. I was then handed out on the grounds of ill health. Here's the best bit for you. A month after I'd left that NHS trust, I got a letter apologising for putting me in an untenable position. The problem is by then, it's me that's out of a career. Yeah. You know, so so I lose a career in the NHS where I felt I could make a positive difference because I was put in an untenable position. Now, I yeah. should stress, I never received a penny compensation for any of that. I was just hounded out of that career and that was that. And that's, that's a real bummer. I mean, I'm not putting it politely because... I was, I got into the NHS and, you know, I said I was clapping like a demented seal at that, you know, um, induction. I was so proud to be part of this thing, you know, because as a concept, it is wonderful. I think um, you, in your book, I think you say you should never meet your heroes, don't you? That's how you described it. You were so <laughs> yeah. disillusioned by yeah. it. That yeah. was what it felt you know, like. It totally did. It really did. You know, um, it, it was as if, it was as if, you know, me and Dorothy and the rest of the gang had got to the end of the yellow big road, pulled the curtain back. There was the wizard, and he was a total. And <laughs> it's like, yeah, he was. That was tough. But d what then took me to the point of suicide myself was that I th when you realise that the world doesn't work the way you think it works, yeah, right. That that, that the good guys don't win, yeah. That there's nobody coming over the hill to rescue you. The cavalry aren't there. The police aren't going to help you. You're going to get hounded out of your employment, yeah. And you just you you do you reach this point where you think, bloody hell. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they say, when people used to say to me, Tom, what doesn't kill you will make you stronger, I used to literally feel like punching them. So I thought, you have no fucking idea what it feels like to be me right now. I do not feel strong. I do not feel strong. Now I feel a bit like one of those, you know, those Japanese plates, right, that gets broken and then gets remade with the gold yeah. dust and the glue. Yeah, 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 they yeah. It, they call it kintsugi, don't they, you know? Yeah. So the plate is actually stronger afterwards and in some respects more beautiful, but you're just not welcome at the dinner table with the other plates, right? Yeah, because you look odd. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I sort of feel—I feel a bit like that now. I feel a bit kintsugi. I feel—I do feel stronger. I, I feel more comfortable in my own skin. But it's just a shame that people aren't me. People, sorry, like me that we don't feel comfortable in places like the NHS, and we should. Yeah. That's exactly where people like me should feel comfortable. But but as soon as we start to challenge people who want to talk about targets and measures and reputation management, you know, really, just you know, we. We deserve better than that, don't we? Yeah, we do. Find out where Tom's 5-Minute Friday podcast is on the chart soon. The Pod 20 is heard on podcast radio on DAB in the UK, on demand in the USA at talkers.com, around the world on multiple platforms and as a podcast itself. Into the chart now and at number 20. The rest is history. Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook interrogate the past. Episode 146 is called Disease versus the Rise of Civilization.
19. The Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show with DJ Envy, Angela Yee and Chalamain, the God. 18. Monday Morning Podcast, Bill Burr rants about snow, popular podcasts and why the media is starting a war with Russia. 17. Distractable, thoughtful discussions about funny, out there or otherwise interesting stories from everyday life. In the latest episode, they search for the funniest joke in the world. 16. Three men in a microphone. One of the three men is Damien Lee. Damien? The podcast I enjoyed the most, I think, was the one with Joe Lysett. Has he been your favourite guest? I think, to be fair, because Joe was so big um, for us to have, and, you know, we are we are a little podcast um, now. Ian has known um, Joe. Joe's local. Uh, and Joe actually nice. did some work at the um, the local hospital radio station. Um, so that was a big deal when we got Joe on. Um, it was great that he'd was- come on, though, because he's at the peak of his powers right now. And, you know, you can often get people on the way up and on the way down. But to get them when they're at the peak, is it's nice to know that they'll do that. So it was. I mean, he could have retweeted. That would have been nice. Um, but, <laughs> no, he was, um, you know, great guest. Never sent anything out to us, you know. Asked him back for a Christmas special. Didn't bother. Nice guy. Um, but in all seriousness, he, he was a great guest he gave us a lot of time and um yeah we we had zippy on as well um the voice of um okay yeah yeah. um, which was which was fantastic and then we go to the even bigger uh box of celebrities that was stevie richards from the x factor i'm not sure if i remember stevie's work nor do we really no he was on for a minute and then he went so, oh, I see. You know, so that's great. not just one of the things I'm out of touch with. He actually really didn't make that much of an impact. I think Stevie Richard was a bit, a bit out of touch as well, to be honest. Bless him. But uh, right. no, we've had some. We've had some really great. Uh, I think Joe to just come on and Joe actually did one of our live shows as well. Um, so for Joe to take part in that, it was uh, it was really good fun. Um, and he was a bit naughty as well on that show. So yeah, by far he kind of was on uh, in the very early days. Um, and the guests have changed a bit now. We, we also get people on from um, social media as well. So influencers, we've had someone on last week from um, TikTok and um, Instagram. Um, they're called Sienna and George. Um, very interesting story. He's a bigger guy, quite big. He was described in the sun as morbidly obese. Um, and she's described as, I, I guess, beautiful very good looking and these two have got a huge following on tiktok and on instagram um and they've been in the press about their relationship because people can't actually think why is she with this big guy he's so out we of thought, league, is he right yeah i mean he's punching yeah. massively so we thought we'd uh, we'd get him on the show and her on the show and they've been through a lot of those guys you know they've had a lot of hate a lot of trolls and uh, he's an actor he's been in a bbc three comedy uh, but they were great guests as well and we, we, we're just trying to sort of go and, and reach out to different people whether that's kind of a-listers or people that may have an, a, a, an influence um hey, we if also they've got a following that's going to help you because you know you're going to expose three men and a microphone to their followers so that's a good trick actually yeah and, you know podcast. again that's that's something that we're relying if we didn't say we we thought of um we also did a, a sort of a spin-off to our show which was called the interviews which was just an interview program uh, with ian and darren um they didn't trust me with that one to be honest uh, but we had some good people on there so i don't know if you're an eastenders fan uh, no, if you don't uh, get eastenders 
Well, well I, know it, Cash- I know it's very popular. <laughs> yeah, well, there was a guy called Lord Michael Cashman that uh, um, was played Colin uh, in EastEnders in the 1980s. Uh, he's now in the House of Lords. Uh, so he came on and uh, we had him for an interview, which was um, which was great. Uh, that was really, again, it's different people, different backgrounds. So, you know, the guests that we've had, we've been lucky. We've been lucky. When we look back on it and we sort of do our best of, like, how on earth did we get them? So, you know, then you get others who you can't get a word in edgeways. You know, one of my favourites, Lovely Eyes, Lisa Appleton. Well, Three Men in a Microphone is at number 16 this week. On the pod 20. 15. The Jordan B. Peterson podcast. Enlightening discourse that will change the way you think. 14. Sky News Arabia. 13. On Purpose with Jay Shetty. Fascinating conversations with the most insightful people in the world. Jay's latest guest is Corin Fox on coping with anxiety and being kind even when life isn't. 12. Freakonomics Radio. The Hidden Side of Everything with Stephen J. Dubner, co-author of the Freakonomics books. 11. The Bible in a Year with Father Mike Schmitz. Father Schmitz walks you through the entire Bible in 365 episodes. Here's what the podcast might sound like if it was presented by the late Dave Allen. There are certain things when I read the Bible, and I do read the Bible, that I find difficult to understand. I mean, if God has been there forever, what was he doing before he got to us? I mean, what was he out there doing? Was he sitting there going... Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> bored today, what will I do? So then suddenly from nowhere, he suddenly decided to create a world. I'll make a world, that's what. Make a world, yes, that's what I'll do. Rivers, seas, mountains. Boom, everything is there. I want a garden. I'd like a nice garden. Quack! Garden me. Hate gardening. <laughs> garden. Ah, gardener. Spit and dust. Adam. Hey! And he, Adam, never once says, Where in the name of God did I come from? <laughs> I mean, he's 40 years of age. He has no child, he has no recall. He doesn't say, How did I get here? But he's quite happy. He just kind of trundles around the garden, working away. And God is looking at him, and he sees that animal's happy. (laughs) I didn't put him there to be happy. I'll put a stop to that. And God, during the night, sneaks down like a thief and steals, doesn't ask, doesn't request, doesn't, steals it, his rib. And from his rib, he makes woman. And Adam wakes up in the morning, he's a real thicky. <laughs> he's lying there, he's in, And there's somebody else, he doesn't say, where did you come from? Where did, how did the hell did you get here? Where did you, where did you get those lumps? goes out and goes gardening. (laughs) And God comes down and has a conversation with Eve and tells her that she can eat of any fruit in the tree in the whole garden with the exception of one fruit tree. 
He's talking to a woman. <laughs> he actually tells her not to eat of the fruit. And then when she says, which tree can't I eat? He said, that one over there. He points it out to her. <laughs> and when he goes and hides, and she sneaks up to the tree, and a snake comes down and has a conversation. <laughs> a snake. Now, if I see a snake, I'll back off. <laughs> One starts talking, I'll crap myself. <laughs> and the snake actually convinces her to eat the apple. And she eats the apple. And when she eats the apple, she learns shame. That's what happens when you eat apples. <laughs> now, she's not ashamed that she's disobeyed God or that she's eaten the apple. She's ashamed of one here, one part of her body. That's all. She becomes ashamed of that area of the body. Now, why that area? Why not her elbow? Her nose. Do, do you actually realize that if Eve had been ashamed of her nose, every woman in the world now would be ashamed of your noses. You'd all be sitting here tonight with little nose knickers on. Men would be in nightclubs watching totally naked ladies with G-strings on the nose. Oh, I saw a nose! Oh. And this is the book. This is the book that you'll go into court and place your hand upon. And swear to tell the truth, the whole truth. We're into the top ten, and at number ten, Alan Carr's Life's a Beach. Alan invites famous guests to discuss their favourite places in the world. 9. Hidden Brain Shankar Vedantam uses science and storytelling to reveal the unconscious patterns that drive human behaviour. 8. Sweet Bobby Kirat is a successful radio presenter. On Facebook she meets Bobby, a handsome cardiologist. He's a catch. Soon they get tangled up in a love affair full of lies and manipulation. Then... Kirat discovers a deception of almost unimaginable proportions. 7. Tom's 5-Minute Friday Podcast It's presented by the NHS whistleblower Tom Bell. Tom, a nurse had sex with your sister Alison while she was a patient at an NHS mental health hospital. A secret abortion was arranged as part of a cover-up. Alison ended up taking her own life. You've been campaigning on your own and at your own expense for years to get justice. How does it feel knowing that the NHS, the police and the Crown Prosecution Service have unlimited taxpayer-funded resources to help them continue to hide the truth? They've got their own legal department, right? All yeah. it takes for them is for a manager to walk into the legal department's office and say, I need a bit of help managing this, yeah? Yeah. This is, you know, <laughs> this is me, right, in my loft, in a terrace yeah. house in Penrith. I love it to bits, by the way. Um, but, you know, I've got my me, me old printer, sort of yeah. a few stamp, some But they've got a team. Yeah. I've got 4,000 yeah. emails in my inbox, right? I had to, I had to change my computer recently because the other one was crashing, yeah? And, and you're right, they've got a team. And if they need a new computer, they just order a computer. Thank you very much. I'll have that out the public purse. And yeah. then they're paying their solicitors out the public purse. 
So not only are they exacerbating my hell, but they are charging me for doing it. Yeah. And it's like, well, how do you know what I mean? We had to crowdfund just to get the money, to get the appeal together for a new inquest, right? We had to crowdfund that money, £8,000, because I didn't have it, because the Crown Prosecution Service have effectively now closed the door on, on, a, on, a, on a trial. What they've said is, that's not going to happen. So even, even though we told them that we had the right of appeal, which they then acknowledged we did, six months after that, they said, right, we've not accepted your appeal anyway, right? So then we arranged to meet them, because I thought, I have to meet these people. I have to meet these wizards behind the curtain that are making all these crappy decisions, right? So these two people come up to Carlisle to meet us, both called senior Crown prosecutors. God knows what the juniors are like, but that's another story. So these two senior Crown prosecutors have got this massive dictaphone machine on the table, something that came out the arc, right? And they're trying to get this thing working so we can record the meeting, yeah? And I think they deliberately kind of, it, they couldn't work. It, oh, it's, oh, it's too hard to work. It's, it's, so I just pulled this up-to-date digital dictaphone out of my pocket and said, don't worry, I'm recording it anyway. Stuck <laughs> that on the table, right? Yeah. And so two hours later, right, we're no further forward. And when we sat there with the Crown Prosecution Service, do you know what the senior Crown Prosecutor said to me? This is as true as I'm sat here, because it's on tape. She said to me, it seems to me, Tom, that the only thing he did wrong was have sex in the wrong place. The only thing he did wrong was have sex in the wrong place. Because they were trying to make out that it was a consensual relationship when Alison, who's got mental health problems, was in no fit state to, to give consent to anything, really. Absolutely. It's, it is effectively statutory rape. But here's the, yeah. here's the thing for you, right? So we'd said to the CPS in the run-up to this, we'd said, are you sure you've got all, all the evidence and expertise that you need to understand what the impact of this would be? And we even introduced them to a wonderful professor, a lady called um, Janet Melville Wiseman, who's a, she's kind of an expert on the power dynamics between health professionals and patients, yeah? Because you, you, you're in brilliant territory here, Graham. This is all about power dynamics, yeah? So not only was it what he did illegal and amoral and, and a lot of other things, but she couldn't consent because she was mentally ill. She was actually there for her protection when he groomed her, yeah? Hmm. So she was supposed to be safe from the outside world, right? And... For them to say it was a consensual relationship, it's kind of like they've been reading Mills and Boone as their reference material, yeah? You know? Um, and we said to them, look, do you understand the issues here between a health professional and a patient? Do you need us to help you access the expertise you need to deal with this case properly, right? Because mm. that was important to us, that they got it right this time, yeah? Mm. And do you know what they said to us? They said, we've got all the expertise we need in-house. No need right. to worry. No need to worry. Right. About. So... We finally get this decision. And then when you realize this woman's actually sitting there saying to you, all he did was have sex in the wrong place. Which is kind of like, it's a bit like, imagine, let's imagine your missus, right? She gets run over tomorrow, right? I bloody well hope that doesn't, never happens to any of us, right? But they get run over tomorrow because they're in a 20 mile an hour zone, right? Pedestrian zone, yeah? And someone drives through them at 50 miles an hour, right? Imagine that driver, he stands up in court and he says, don't know what all the fuss is about. All I was doing was 50 mile an hour in the wrong place. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hang on a minute, mate. You, you know, oh yeah, but 50 miles an hour is legal on the road over there. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, that's it, that's basically what they were saying. And I said, do you think they actually no. believed that or that was, that was, they were just trying to get you to back down? Scary thing is, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Is it malice or is it incompetence or is it just a, a heady cocktail of the two? Um, I really don't know. We then, we then decided, okay, right, it seems that they don't have the knowledge that they need. So right. we wrote to the CPS and said, 
you know, in polite terms, because by this time, by, we've actually realised now that the horse has bolted. We are never going to get a prosecution for Alison in a court. Because even when we said to the CPS, can we crowdfund a private prosecution based on the evidence that we've got and the fact that he's admitted it, yeah? Hmm. They said, their words, not mine, there are cases where we can intervene and stop a private prosecution happening, and this would be one of them. Right. So they even stood in the way of a private prosecution. We have no idea why that is. So we send off a freedom of information request to them, right? Saying, please give us details of the database and the knowledge and the academic research that you use to inform your decision-making, yeah? Because they've said they've got the expertise in-house. They, they said, said it. it. They said it. Oh, we can't give you that data protection. So what do you mean data protection? Well, you know, there are individuals and stuff named on it. I said, well, well, I said you can redact the names of the individuals. I said, all I'm actually asking you for is, I said, imagine you work in a, in a university library and somebody says to you, can you give me the references for that source of knowledge? That's what I'm asking you for. I'm not asking you to give me somebody's home phone number and details. What I'm saying is, give me the names of the papers, the books, the documents, and the sources of knowledge that you refer to when you're making these decisions. Hmm. Oh, no, we can't give you that. No, no. Right. So we go to and fro through the appeals process, as we do, right? We then go to the information commissioner's office, yeah? The information commissioner says, I support Mr. Bell in this. Please provide him with the information that you said you had. At which point they are forced to admit they never had any such information. But once again, there's no consequences. No consequences. They've They're said, they've said we, we've, we've got it all worked out here. We've got the people and whatever when they didn't. But there's yep. no consequences. And it yep. seems that if what you're saying about public services in the UK and how they like to cover up and reputation manage, if you're dealing with, now you're dealing with the police, the NHS and the Crown Prosecution Service, you've got now, there's, there's three major organisations with reputations to protect. And you mm. wonder if they were colluding with each other to cover each other's asses now, don't you? Somebody makes a mistake over here, right? And then what happens is, it's covered up a small degree, yeah? Yeah. And then it's covered up a little bit more because somebody asks a question. So the lie grows. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's a bit like, so if I said to, if I said to um, Debbie, you know, oh, Debbie, I was late in tonight because I was at work, right? But actually I've been to the pub for a few pints, yeah? Mm -hmm. I have to I have to build that lie, don't I? What I've then got to do is ring around my friends, right? <laughs> and say, yeah. Graham, yeah? You if know, anyone asks you. Yeah, Stuart, <laughs> yeah. If anyone asks, right? Right, okay. Yeah. So at that point, You've then got to probably say to your partners, yeah, if Tom's missus rings up, right, <laughs> you have to say, I was in the pub, yeah? Yeah. So then you extend it and you go to the, so the pub landlord, right? Just, you know, if my missus asks, <laughs> right? And so from this little thing that occurred, which is just a human error, right, that someone didn't admit, it might be well-intentioned or it could be malicious, whatever it was, it was just one thing that happened, right? It grows. And so it gets to the stage where somebody then has to start ringing the wagons, yeah? Yeah. We've got to circle. Somebody's asking too many questions, so we've got to circle the wagons, right? Yeah. Um, so that lie grows. And the problem is everybody then, then got involved in the lie has to protect the lie, don't they? Yeah. Right? So then what happened with us was the lie went from the NHS to the local police force because what we hadn't realised was <laughs> back in 2001, and again, I'm smiling here, but it makes me blood boil, the divisional commander for Cumbria Police was on the board of the NHS Trust. Right. Nobody told us that at the time, right? Nobody said that to us. 
Can you imagine being those two coppers that are tasked with doing that investigation, right? Oh, this bloke called Tom Bell's been on, and he thinks something untoward happened at the local mental health trust. You know, the one that the governor's on the board of. Yeah. Ah, right, okay. That's a career terminal move, if ever there was one, yeah? Yeah. So so there's a nod and a wink, and they drop the investigation. So all of a sudden, you've gone from this one stupid man making a stupid, if human, you know, human, but stupid, stupid error, to an organisational cover-up, then a, a cover-up that spans two organizations then the cps get involved and they can't admit that they dropped the ball during the first investigation so they don't want their incompetence coming out at a, at a second go yeah yeah so but then you've got these three organize and then the care quality commissions in the background right <laughs> you know the number of organizations you've got and then you've got the you know the independent office for police complaints desperately trying to cover up stuff right and and you're just left in the middle of it thinking and i'm paying for this yeah i'm yeah. paying for this can, yeah. And that's just, you know, I mean, in my spare time, one of the things I do is I run this website called Humanity and Integrity in Public Sector Services, hipss.org.uk. And I realise that people will drop the ball. I'm not, you know, I'm not vindictive towards the, the people that have, have wronged us. I just want to understand. That's, you know, because I think improvement begins with understanding. It's really easy to sit on the sidelines and say, you're all a bunch of bastards, you know, and you should all be sacked. That's not the solution, right? There must be a reason why the cultures are creating these behaviours. And so we need to understand that. And we need to get underneath it and say, look, let's create room for well-intentioned mistakes. Yeah, that's let's, let's do that, right? Let's not haul people over the coals if they do the wrong prescription or make an error in the paperwork or submit a police report incorrectly or the CPS, do you know what I mean? Or somebody mm -hmm. in the CPS lies. It's what happens afterwards, isn't it, that then grows and grows. And... It's yeah, we, we are in the we're in the territory of targets and reputation management and the, the cultures that are in our, our public services right now, they will take a, a generation to change because people aren't the turkeys aren't gonna vote for Christmas. Mm. And change isn't, you know, I mean, we're a pair of grey haired old blocks, aren't we? I mean, you're you're probably a bit younger than I am, Graham, but we you know, our generation, there's very few people I mean, I'm fifty four next birthday, right? There aren't many people at the age of 50 who would turn their back on a career because their moral compass told them to do so. That's not a mark of me being courageous. It's just something I had to do, yeah? I couldn't, I had no choice in that. So I'm not a, I'm not a brave or a courageous person, but I had no choice. I had to, I couldn't turn a blind eye to what I was seeing because it just, it wasn't, I couldn't do it. It wasn't me. Um, and that's been shaped by my experiences. But, the vast majority of people who don't have those experiences as a backdrop, yeah, mm -hmm. they're not going to give up a career, are they? A well-paid career at the age of 50 where they've got the pension in sight. Mm. Mm. You know, change, change is going to have to come from uh, from a younger generation. Uh, you know, people who... But we need to fundamentally rethink our relationship with public services. And I know that sounds like one of those sweeping statements, you know, but there's that, that lack of accountability... We have now, we have companies listed on the FTSE 500 who are more transparent in their dealings with their shareholders than our public services are in their dealings with us. That's wrong because we're paying for them. And mm. importantly, we have no choice about whether or not we pay for them. Yeah, the whole thing sucks, Tom. And Tom's five-minute Friday podcast is at number seven this week on the Pod 20. At six, Smartless 
Jason Bateman, Sean Hayes and Will Arnett connect people from all walks of life. 5. My favourite murder with Karen Gilgariff and Georgia Hardstark. Karen and Georgia tell each other their favourite tales of murder and hear hometown crime stories from friends and fans. 4. Stuff You Should Know If you've ever wanted to know about Champagne, Satanism, the Stonewall Uprising, Chaos Theory, LSD, El Nino, True Crime and Rosa Parks, then look no further. Josh and Chuck have you covered. The latest episode is about firewalking. 3. Crime Junkie If you can never get enough true crime, congratulations, you've found your people. 2. Rob Beckett and Josh Widdicombe's Parenting Hell It's parenting, just not as you know it. And at number one... You've seen him on Dragon's Den. The Diary of a CEO with Steve Bartlett. And that's it for episode 93. Thanks to this week's guests, Tom Bell and Damien Lee. Next week, my guest is Nikki Bannerman from the Influential Women podcast. In the meantime, you can watch extended video chats with my guests on YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. And what will happen on the podcast radio chart next week? Will your favourite make it to number one? Find out with me, Graham Mack, on Fridays at 5pm and across the weekend on podcast radio. And you can influence the chart. Make a recommendation at thepodcastradio.co.uk. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.